0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Powell Podcast. It feels like it's been years since the last time I uploaded an episode. As you may or may not know, I have other business ventures I pursue, so sometimes it is crazy to juggle them with the interviews. So I'm back. I've bought new equipment for a much deserved audio and hopefully video experience. For the next two months, I'll be using interviews I have recorded before and during the summer. If you know me, you know it's about quality, not quantity. So. Who is our next guest? Tsitsi Motendi. This episode was really gratifying for me for several reasons, but one that I will share was the simplicity in Tsitsi's explanation about the need to build financial legacies. It is easy to dismiss the idea, but when working our whole lives, we're building something for our grandchildren. Sitsi is a co-founder of the African family firm. She's an expert in family governance, a family f- office consultant, and a fellow podcaster. She started a plethora of businesses, among them a media company that publishes Jewel magazine. Mufaru Toys is, I quote, a line of diverse handcrafted dolls intended to offer comfort and companionship to girls around the world. She's also the founder of Women of Legacy Foundation, Dance Media, and CEO of Mucha Couture. I bet you're wondering if she has 24 hours in a day. I personally, I am asking the same question. Plus, she's a wife and a mother. Take that work-life balance. She's the first Zimbabwean on the pod, and certainly not the last, and currently resides in SA, South Africa. If you want to want know more about her work, take a look at her LinkedIn for profile. For the brave ones, you can even send her a DM. I'll encourage you to do so. I'm saying the brave ones, why? Not because she's scary, but because usually it's super uncomfortable to text a an known person. Voilà our Podcasts is getting super technical as I interviewed amazing women in the tech sector. And men, of course, but you know what I mean. You'll hear more about it if you decide to subscribe to Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Pods, Afribots, and so on. For the lucky ones living in Nigeria, MTN has launched a podcast platform called Odap. where well, you'll be able to listen to my work as well. Let's make sure every Niger has the intel. Because, you know, who knows? Maybe next year I'll be traveling in the country to meet you all. Voilà. Parole Podcast with Tsitsi Until next time. Parole Podcast with Alexandra. And uh, where are we today? I am in Johannesburg.
1: It's winter. It's yes. it's, it's crying for souls.
0: And, but but then again, for people who've never been to South Africa, hey, we'll have all these cliches. Not me, obviously that uh, everything is all good over there other than i think the floods uh, weeks ago or something like that
1: yes there was like really bad rain and floods um passed, what can i say it, um, a few a few weeks ago but it is that was in durban which is um a coastal city today
0: i'm going to take my listeners to some place maybe they have never been uh, some terms mm-hmm. they've never heard before and with you on the podcast, it's amazing because maybe people will be um it's like they'll enter the metaverse somehow. I really hope so. So we're gonna talk about that African family offices, we're gonna talk about philanthropy, we're gonna talk about Ubuntu or Ubuntu, depending on who you know who's speaking. With everything interesting for me, obviously, as a financial person. But let me start at the beginning.
1: Mm-hmm. Titsy, who are you? Tsitsi is a wife, a mom, a business owner. I am a third-generation family business owner. I am interested in uplifting the African continent and making it um, more than just home for next gens, which is my more aptly put um, in a conversation I once had with um, with a with a guest on on some of our platforms at um, African Family Firms. The gentleman was like, when we are planning our lives, we must plan our lives knowing that whatever work we're doing is not for ourselves or our children, but it is going to be felt by our grandchildren. So whatever we are doing now, we probably will not see the fruits of it in the way that our grandchildren will feel the fruits of it. So as we navigate our lives, as I navigate my life, I am navigating it with my grandchildren in In perspective and creating um, the Africa that I would like them to walk into when they eventually come about
0: that is amazing that is just amazing because it feels like for people who are um, going through life you know daily especially with everything that's happening in this world good lord in Europe Mm -hmm. in Africa and elsewhere we tend to think about tomorrow so literally today we're Monday and hopefully for the best ones they're thinking about Friday you know let me rest, let me think about, you know, Saturday. And da, da, da. Mm-hmm. How how did you get that mentality that what I can call revelation or that philosophy of I'm thinking third generation?
1: I guess it's looking at being frustrated. We are a microwave generation. We are a fast food drive-in generation. We want to order one window, collect the next window and hope that the food is going to be perfect. And A lot of our consumerism, a lot of the way um, the companies that are out there um, perform and look at life is to bring the most convenience to customers. So in our mindsets, we no longer have the ability to actually see what reality is, which is change may not happen in our generation. It, 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 we start the, the wheels moving in a certain way, but the actual fruition of the vision is the futuristic goal. So I am living the future of my great grandparents. They wanted a, a, a free black person in Africa who could vote and make decisions. And I am the manifestation of their hopes and their dreams. And my children are the manifestation of my parents' dreams, which is I want my children to have uh, my, my, my children to have a good education. And I want them to be able to travel the world and see the world and experience the world. So my children are a manifestation of my, my parents, would say my grandparents' thought processes. And so um, I, am a, I am a manifestation of the great grandparents, my children manifestation of the this the second one in line so when I'm planning Martin Luther King never saw Barack Obama becoming president but he had that vision he created it he manifested it and he he put the dream in so many people to be able to carry it and for it to eventually happen is because it was created by um someone who saw it as a possibility and fought for it
0: man that is so true how about the family, being a woman, a business owner? Uh, I'm saying this because I think it's uh, it's a normal activity somewhere in Africa, but depending on you know business uh, you're dealing with, if you're, in, I don't know, I'm thinking about a family in Burundi that's into logistics or energy, and I'm like, it's mm-hmm. not really common, but if you're selling vegetables on the market, we tend to believe that it's the, the go-to thing to do for a woman.
1: How do you see yourself in that realm? Uh, as a businesswoman, yep. being a woman in, in this world in general has its own challenges. Our society, no matter where you go on the globe, is, is geared towards it being a man's world. And so I think even when the women's movement started and we started getting rights and abilities to do so much, we still were having that pushback of we then become a threat To masculinity to a certain extent. Myself being a businesswoman, luckily I come from Africa because, surprisingly, if you look at the history of Africa and even the cultures and societies in Africa, they are female dominated. Women play very pivotal roles in the administration of the culture and the continent. So if you look at um, ancient kingdoms, if you look at the way we pre-colonialism, before a Western point of view was brought onto the continent, women pretty much held seats mm-hmm. at important tables. They were monarchs. They were uh, warriors. They they were the ones who start businesses. And you see the majority of businesses on the continent are started by women. We are the traders. We are the creators. We we play very pivotal roles within the economy however with the coming of colonialism came this discussion around patriarchy and male domination and women were forced to take a backseat role in a lot of spaces and so for me i find that being a businesswoman is harder when we are looking at the western context of it than the african context of it because and then the cultural conversations in Africa, we know that women are the people who hold up most of the sky. And when we are then forced into, or we are navigating cultures where we take a back seat, where we only speak when spoken to, it then becomes a kind of um, a difficult navigation and we become tokens in some conversations where it's like oh wow she's a woman who did this yet when I look at from the cultural perspective I hold so many roles in um, in my cultural background and I get a lot of respect in that space and there's certain things that can't be done without me being there as a woman and the role that I hold and Especially for Africans, I mean, South
0: Africans. Sorry, the whole post-apartheid. I think I don't think other African countries really understand that. Is it getting better? Is it easy for a black woman in South Africa? Doesn't have to be in the big cities, to to do well financially, to to grow the business, to to think global, to think local. Is is it something that is available, or is just still some hurdles along the way? unless you've been to Oxbridge or something like that?
1: For me, I, I primarily come from Zimbabwe. So I know that, env- the env- that environment better. And I've been operating in South Africa, yes. I think to be honest and fair to women and all the work that has been done in the space of creating more spaces and voices for women, the truth is we get what we fight for. You're not going to get any females. There's You're not going to get an opportunity just because you're a woman. You're going to get an opportunity because you're competent in what you're doing. And I think it's it's a global conversation where there was a time you could get away with saying, I am a woman, give me an opportunity. But that that quota um, system ended. You have to show up and you have to show out. You have to show how capable you are so that people are happy in investing in you investing in you and also um, engaging your, your mind, engaging your business, engaging what you have to offer. Because if you're not competent, you're not going to get the opportunities. And if you get them because of a quota system, you quickly will be replaced simply because you are not
0: competent. Let me take you to Africa, then the whole place, you know, the dark continent, as it used to be called. Do we have wealthy families there? Do we have
1: people who are doing well financially? On the continent?
0: Yes, ma'am.
1: Wow. So <laughs> the reason I get the wow is like we have family offices on the right. continent. And when you say <laughs> family offices, you're talking about families that have a net worth of over 100 million US dollars who set up offices dedicated to managing their wealth, their investment, the livelihood of the family, the educational journey of the family, the transition of the family. I think I've written extensively um, using the statistics that have come through from um, an African bank that is in Mauritius that continuously does a wealth survey every year. On the continent, we have thousands of U.S. dollar millionaires. We also then have we have the high net worth, which is the millionaires, the ultra high net worth where you're talking about billionaires, we have them on the African continent, although we don't have them in as much uh, condensation as the global scale. But on the continent, we have wealth and, and it's no longer a growing middle class. We have a huge movement of wealth being created in different spaces on the continent. For, for, for people who obviously follow maybe the
0: Forbes list and everything, we tend to look at the same names for over, uh, I think, 20 years. The same names are popping up here and there. What are Africans missing on through the list? What what should we be learning? I know Dancote. I know Strife Oh, Jesus. Strive from Econet. I know mm-hmm. those you names. You got it
1: right the first time. Is that so? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come yes. on.
0: I've been, uh, been trying. And... And I know that for me it makes sense because I grew up hearing some names in the uh, you know Rothschilds and Rocket or in the Gates and da, da, da. and I tend to forget that back home we have those names that are shaking whatever economy is back home. I'm posting things online just to make sure that Afri- like my friends, my network understand that Africans were not all starving. I've never starved in my life whatsoever to have a dunkote. What does it mean for Nigeria slash Africa?
1: Remember that. Afrasia Bank, I was speaking about, and they have an annual wealth report where they speak to in terms of benchmarking Africa's wealth in context and country wealth rankings and so forth, which is actually a thing on the continent where because it is there, you can track it. So let's say, for example, um, what they, the statistics they've come up with when, when they're benchmarking Africa's wealth in context, right? The private wealth held on the African continent uh, amounts to approximately two, million, 2 trillion. That is held on the continent, right? And you have approximately 125,000 millionaires, that's high net worth individuals living in Africa, and each with net assets of 1 million or more. You have approximately 6,200 multimillionaires living in Africa. Each with net assets of over 10 million or more. We have 235 centimillionaires living in Africa, each with net assets of 100 million or more. And we have twenty-two billion billionaires living in Africa, each with net assets of 1 billion or more.
0: Enough said. Okay, they're <laughs> playing the, the continents.
1: This is spread from South Africa, Egypt, Nigeria, Morocco, Kenya, Ethiopia, Ghana, Tanzania, Angola, Cote d'Ivoire. Mauritius, Uganda, Namibia, Mozambique, Botswana, Zambia, Rwanda, the list is endless. We have 54 countries on the continent. I I remember I wrote an
0: article back I think last year or the beginning of the year where I I said something about being born rich because I had seen a documentary about I guess family offices actually in the U.S. featured Donald Trump's daughter at some point or something and I remember just hearing the way they were talking about wealth and I, I realized like if you were maybe born in the Upper East Side or in the suburbs or in the Connecticut, whatever, you tend to see the world a certain way. But what if you were born in Cairo and, okay, you're a billionaire's daughter, but you do get to see some troubling things in the country, poverty, you know, lack of access of this and that. And I remember writing and thinking, how can we use that wealth that is available on the continent, maybe helping venture capitals Invest investments um, around the, the continent. What about we do this museum for the arts? How about we do other things like this? You know, we're just changing the, the narrative um, as a whole, basically. Mm-hmm. Are we doing so or just maybe my brain is so Western, you know, connected that I try to do the same things as I'm seeing here in France
1: and I tend to believe that we should all do the same things because it's working. Looking at how we navigate when it comes to building wealth and what works and doesn't work. We have to understand that each region has different histories. And so there are spaces in which some things work and others do not. Africa in itself is very vast. It's a huge continent. And you can fit in a couple of the other continents within Africa. That's how big the continent is. Each country has its own unique history, because when we were parceled out during um, the colonial era, we got different colonial masters. Yes, they did try to bring advancement to the continent, as as they called it during the time. But the truth is, we had working systems in place. And when we all gained our independence, obviously there were some conflicts, because um, in in cases we had natural enemies or uh, tribal enemies put in 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 certain places but i think even the conversations around those have started to evolve with new generations coming and intermarriages and also the fact that we've been stuck in the same borders for long enough let's find a way of getting along and we we are seeing that there are some in some places where africa has brought innovation before even uh, the western counterparts i mean look at mobile money You have Mpesa in Kenya, you have EcoCash in Zimbabwe. Cash App came recently, but we have been doing mobile money like forever, like for many years before, like it was introduced to the West because it was just convenient for us on the continent. So the solutions for one region cannot apply to another region simply because we we wish for it to. It doesn't work like that. We have to be intentional sometimes in how we engage Change or engage policies as well as thought processes. I know there's like, especially with Africa, you get people be like, "Oh, you know, you have such and such a country in in the West or in Europe or the US that do this, and it might work in Africa." Yes, it might work in concept. If you're sitting in that country, when you come on the ground, you need to figure out what works in this country, not what are the problems, because ultimately commerce wealth building creation comes from creating solutions for problems on the ground so if we look at applying a solution that works in another country you need to ask yourself is this solution applicable to a similar problem or do you want to just try to force things because truly, they are. we have a lot of problems we need to solve on the continent. If When people find solutions for those problems and people are receptive to those solutions, that's how wealth is made, because you are solving a current problem. If you are not solving a current problem or you're solving a problem that's in, in France or England or Germany, in Zimbabwe, where they don't need that solution, well, you're going to be very disappointed real quick. And how then do you define your work at the
0: family office room?
1: For me, it's important for Africans to have generational wealth. Why is it important to have generational wealth? It's because generational wealth is an intentional building of industries, intentional building of dynasties, family dynasties, is an intentional building and continuation of a conversation. Family offices are families that have got into a certain amount of wealth and are looking to preserve that wealth by managing it as an investment entity or managing it as something that is of value. The work I do is to help families across the board, the ones that are starting up to the ones that have got family offers, to understand what their values are, understand what it is that they're truly passing on to the next gen and define it, understand what their role in community is and how they can continue upholding that, understand their contribution to industries and into economies and be able to use the influence that they have to to allow the next gen and the gen after that not to be fighting the same war. We can't, in every generation, be having the same conversation. It has to evolve. My work is to help families understand what is, it, what is the actual work that they are doing, what is the actual contribution that they're having, and how can they have it perpetuate across time and space, how they can engage family members, or what is family, and how do we make sure that the reason we built what we built continues to be the reason our family thrives going into the future.
0: We in Africa, we have tribes and, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to navigate that reality as well. So you get married to this one. I will even say as a Burundi, you get married to a Kenyan, to a Rwandan. Is it Mm hard to explain that mentality, that reality, that uh, creating, of just explaining what family is
1: at this point? Our tribal heritage impacts our culture. It impacts us in terms of it gives us our identity. It allows us to track back even for millennia in terms of who who comes from our lineage. Who are we? What are the things, what are the values that created our tribe, that created this identity of ours? And also recognize, and this is something that has to be active recognition. In the past, there was reason there were tribal conflict. Understanding the tribal conflict and then bringing the conversation to where we are today allows us to collaborate with each other. At any point in time where conflict is consistently perpetuated, the question should be to whose benefit. In Africa, as Africans, we have a collective psyche, which is we would like to see ourselves prosper, and be able to use the resources that surround us to build this prosperity. And the tribal conflicts that used to happen are no longer relevant in the world we have now, because so many things have happened in between there, and at times we have had to fight together for the common cause. It goes back to communication, understanding why we still have conflicts, where are they emanating from, are we holding grudges we don't even know. I mean, like, Let's not lie, wars have been fought because somebody stole somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend. It has not ended well. I mean, we know the story of Helen of Troy. It did not end well for a lot of people. And so on the African continent, sometimes we have to look at each other and ask each other. We were tribal enemies, history tells us, or we were told by people who have written our history because to a certain extent, we don't have control over our narrative because very few Africans write down things. We depend on oral tradition, which is not always accurate. So understanding why we have the conflict, not just perpetuating it will help us understand if we can benefit from collaborating and then truly seeing where our differences lie as well, where our similarities lie. I mean, out of context, look at the global pandemic. If anything, it showed us that, yes, we live, we all live on a blue marble that is floating through space. And no matter where you are on this marble, you are affected by somebody whose actions are happening right now at thousands of kilometers away from you because at no point in time did we think that a single person's action in a country that you probably have never visited in your life could put the whole globe on a standstill that shows you how impactful actions are and so the question is what are our intentional actions that we are perpetrating and where are they going to lead us Because we are not silos. We do not live in vacuums. Uh,
0: I remember last time we talked. Uh, I really liked the your definition of the black tax. I loved it. Can you recall that way how you said it and how you introduced me to? Because I had heard of it. Obviously, you gave me a new perspective and it blew my mind. I was like, "Yep, yeah, that's that's the way to see it. That's, that's a really an
1: interesting thing." I've had. Oh, I've heard a lot about this conversation around Black tax, um, where we are told or it's communicated to us that as Black people, we tend not to then be able to acquire financial independently as quickly as our other racial counterparts because we are always sending money back home or we are expected to contribute back home and therefore, it puts us at a disadvantage. So because of the space that I'm in, I understand also there's, there's different cultures that are perpetrated across the world. And within the African culture, there's the honor culture where we give a lot of reverence to people who are older than us in age or people who are more mature than us in terms of um, where they are in their lives. So... When you think about it from that point of view, you're obviously going to be like, oh yes, as Black people, we struggle because we have to send money back home. We have to help so-and-so and so forth and my younger sister and so on. But then when you look at it from cultural perspective or the essence of who we are as Africans, we practice what they call Ubuntu. I am because we are. I am the sum total of a collective. And what does that mean? It means that my success, although I feel I have achieved it, does not only belong to me, it belongs to everybody who is poured into me because they wanted me to succeed. And the expectation after I succeed is to for me to be able to pay it forward, which is a term that's now used in the philanthropy space in the West, paying it forward. We have been paying it forward all our lives as Africans, because if I have been successful, I am willing to sacrifice getting into that mortgage or buying that car immediately so that my younger sister can go to school and become somebody or something. Because I know in the long term, if she qualifies as a doctor, we have gained a doctor, not only in the family, but in the community. And that doctor will be able to save lives. However, if I decide to be individual and say, well, I don't owe my community anything. I don't owe my sister anything. My parents can look after her. I mean, like it's their responsibility. Uh, My parents might not be financially able to take care of her and she will drop out of school. She won't be able to be a doctor. Ultimately, as a community, we've lost that opportunity. And we have one more mouth that we need to feed who is struggling on the streets because somebody within the collective decided, oh, I don't owe anything to anyone. However, we are raised in these communities that are not silos. We are raised in communities where If there is a funeral next door, the whole neighborhood will bring food, they will bring drums, they will bring singers, they will bring something to embrace the bereaved, to show them you are not alone. Your loss is our loss. Even if I didn't know the person, your loss is our loss. We cry with you. If there is a wedding, we do the same. We are communal. We are philanthropic by nature. We are continuously giving in the pursuit that if I give to somebody else, I may be that intentional person that creates a ripple that changes the trajectory of the future. And if you look at it from that perspective, a lot of our stories are anchored on Ubuntu, not black tax. They're anchored on Ubuntu, which is I am because of the collective we are. I am because my uncle sent me pocket money when I was in in boarding school and my parents couldn't afford it. I am because my uncle decided to open up, or my aunt decided to open up her home uh, for me after she moved to the UK so I could uh, study being a doctor in the UK. I knew no one, I couldn't, I, I didn't know where to start, but she helped me put in those applications. She even provided surety to me and she is my aunt. She's, she is my brother, my mother's sister's sister's cousin. <laughs> I am because of the collective sacrifice of everybody else. And therefore, I will also pay forward by collectively sacrificing to allow somebody that opportunity that could eventually change the world. I mean, talk about perspective
0: and the way we shift the, the narrative. It's interesting because before I spoke to you, I was reading the definition, really the, the, the main definition of philanthropy. And sudden mm-hmm. I realized, like, I was like, so every African is a philanthropist. Like it's, at this point, everyone who has the means to help each other, as you mm-hmm. say, it's Ubuntu, it's something that is really normal to us. I personally have a problem when people go around and talk about their philanthropic, you know, work here in Africa, helping in Latin America or Southeast Asia. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, you're doing so maybe for your own virtue, it's good for you. How about us Africans trying to do this, like as a Beringian trying to do on a larger Mm -hmm. scale for East Africans, dare I say, Mm -hmm. you know, and say, can we do something to impact the community in this space? Is it Mm -hmm. something that you can help set up, for
1: example? Yes. So philanthropy is a space where it then requires people to introspect. So For you let's say i'm working with you to set up something that is going to be philanthropic or impactful is to understand what are your values what are your family's values what are the things that are important to you with some families it might be education because one family member who grew up in the rural areas who got an opportunity to get an education uplifted the whole family now we are where we are because of that one person so education is important to us because we know that if we empower one person or in the role whatever that can be a huge difference in their lives and so by then saying okay education is the focal point the next question is like do you have any stakeholders in this space from in Burundi who you feel like or in in the area that you want to create ripple impact change in. let's say you say you want to see more more young children from Burundi getting a specific type of education or a specific type of access. so it could be we I wish we had more Wi-Fi or internet connectivity yeah. in rural areas. It's now saying okay. Have you been on the ground in Burundi? Is this something that is capable? Do they have um, Wi-Fi? Do they have fiber? In what areas do they have it? Is it uh, conceivable to then bring this project into fruition? Because sometimes we want to do something, but then the space that you want to impact in is not ready for that specific change that you want to bring about. So then it's then exploring the other spaces that it could be ready for or facilitating the change that would make them ready for what you want to introduce and so my job is to have you reflect on yourself in terms of can this be done what do I how do I need to do it identifying the relevant stakeholders and then helping you structure it in a way that it goes on for a a longer time and then helping you integrate it with your Incoming generation, because you might start it, but unless you light the fire in the next gen that is coming forward, it's gonna be your project. And Mm. once you're gone, they're gonna stop the project. So impact is then saying, you're interested in education. You are interested in let's say building science labs in in the rural areas uh, for for more children to get involved in STEM or, or science. Then your next gens might be, we see the value of education, what it has given us. We would like to add on to what is being done by probably then creating libraries and and motivating for more books to go into these places. So they're not necessarily tagging on to what you are doing, but they're adding their voice and seeing, and then you see the long-term impact because you can measure it with every generation, you're adding on to what you started and they're adding on their voice and their contribution. And so then you see the gradual change. Philanthropy is, it can be impactful in spaces where there is relief, emergency relief. It can be impactful in spaces where you need immediate attention. I mean, like you said at the beginning, we've seen charities give away to starving Africans. I mean, that is when there is a drought in that area and there's need. I mean, we have seen Cyclones, and we have seen earthquakes. We have seen a lot of, globally. There is emergency situations, and the old way of doing it, and which still sometimes applies, is showing people the direst of circumstances to make them open up their purses, which can and sometimes work, and sometimes it might not work. But when you start a conversation from Values, and you ask those people you want to open up their purses to support your cause, and you're putting your own money towards it. They want to see what's going to happen 10 years from now because they know that the immediate change might not be as visible as the long term change. And you are not getting donors who just come in and give once, but you're getting partners who walk with you for the entirety of the journey and so my job is to help you to get clarity on what is this journey and what do you want to, to to eventually be the outcome in the long term and how can we take step by step into making the outcome a reality and moving what is a vision into our present day reality honestly
0: it's like I feel like I can listen to you like for hours but for the sake of the, <laughs> the episode nowadays we're seeing so many things so many people are getting rich in, Bur- in Burundi I say mm-hmm. why not Wait, maybe not uh, in Africa we've mm-hmm. seen the, the likes of how do you call it oh, the episode on Netflix oh Lord now I forget the real the housewives of, of yeah that one and the real housewives of Lagos that yes. I saw like last week. Yes. Is it representative of the average African, the, Afri- the average rich African, their essay?
1: Africa is at a point where we are going to have more than 2 billion people on the continent by 2050. Of those people, we have 1. Something billion currently. Not everybody is in urban. You must understand that. Africa is so vast and uh, the big, bigger part of the population is in the rural areas. And that in itself is, is like when you're looking at keeping up with the Kardashians, that does not represent your average American. Thank you, Jesus. It's, it is a glimpse into a specific family that has chosen to live in a specific way And they um, allow you to be voyeurs and have a glimpse into their lives and share their experiences. Some of these experiences will not apply to you because that is not how you choose to live your life. And some of the values may not apply to you because that is not what you value. That doesn't make them good or bad. So when we look at reality TV, you must also remember there's sometimes scripting. They're showing narratives that they want you to see, and some of my issues with reality TV is um, they show you a percentile, one percent of bigger picture. We have over a billion plus people on the continent. That one percent is just one percent. It's not the majority of Africans. Let's not say that our situation is dire in Africa that that would also be lying um, you have certain places that have do not have the opportunities that other places have development is not a flat line concept that applies to all with each area you have different things that they're dealing with it's like when you ask you like apartheid lasted so long South Africa is the last to actually get independence like what is it like now but then This was 1997, which is like almost two decades, three decades ago. It's like a minute. At the same time, you have countries that got independence earlier, like Nigeria. They struggle with certain things within trying to find their equilibrium. And within every country, there is the urban and there is the rural. And the rural outnumber the urban, as we have clearly seen on the continent, because industrialization has not happened as quickly on the continent as in other places. We're going through our own evolution. And so because of that, let's not take a a, a paintbrush and paint Africa as one thing. It's Mm. not a homogeneous group. It will never be a homogeneous group. We have so much color. We have so much contrast. We have so much Richness in heritage in in so many spaces. Let us look at that and be appreciative of that, and also understand that that one percent that we get to see on TV is also a story. It might not necessarily present the the ninety nine percent, but their story is also relevant.
0: So we have to make sure that Netflix
1: and the likes will put some, I, th- I think, more African stories you see the term more african stories already then discredits the story being told
0: i mean I would do, say- do you understand why i'm saying this cuz this is I weird understand. for me for people who are here and be like oh alex has been you know talking about people who are you know doing well financially in in africa and then i see whatever i saw on tv i'm like this is not what i'm talking about <laughs> this is you know
1: i think what i would say is for Africa and Africans, what is important for us is to stop waiting for someone else to tell our story. As a proverb goes, the hunt will always glorify the hunter as long as the lion has not learned how to speak. As Africans, um, yes, Netflix is a platform which we can engage to tell our stories. There are other platforms, there are other ways. Yeah. Let's not be limited. YouTube is free. You can <laughs> shoot your own whatever and put it on YouTube. Social media is also free just to a certain extent. Yeah. You can you can showcase your own reality TV on there. Don't wait for uh, that phone call that's going to come from a big mm-hmm. organization to tell your story. Be active in telling your story, in telling your reality, mm-hmm. because We need that varied perspective. We need to tell our own stories. Oral traditional will not cut it. Hoping someone else will tell it will not cut it. Going in and then saying, oh, but this does not rip No, tell your story. How are you telling your story? We have so many influencers on social media who are showcasing Africa in different ways. That is also a story. We must continue to be content creators. We must continue to be engages of the the larger world we must not wait for someone else to tell our story but instead be proactive in telling our own stories just like what you're doing with this podcast you are choosing to tell a narrative of Africa it's not the entire picture but it is part of the pixel that will then create a larger image and that's what's really important our proactivity in a space where we are telling our stories and somebody is hearing us, somebody is following us, somebody is engaging us. And ultimately, a holistic image of who we are, what we represent, what we believe in comes alive.
0: Yeah.
1: I won't say no when Netflix calls me, I'm not going to lie, but, <laughs> you know. Oh, hell no, you will not say no because you know what? It's an opportunity to also how you're Absolutely.
0: Yeah. that's true. That's true.
1: But then they're laying people off nowadays, but
0: uh, I have to ask you this question because I read it in a book uh, a couple of years ago and really stuck with me and it's about trust funds, babies and people and trust funds. My first question is as naive as it can be. Can I set up mm-hmm. a trust fund in Africa? and I'm including Mauritius because I know Mauritius is in Africa and it's really useful mm-hmm. for Africans. And second, how can we spread the word that trust funds exist, especially for families wealthy or not? We've known for years. I've heard so many horrific stories of parents die and then the whole thing goes to the brother instead of to the children. Like they're stealing here and there. And I'm like, Good lord, with a good lawyer, with a, an amazing bank, I don't know, investment bank somewhere. I don't know. Just set up this trust fund so that this does not happen ever again it was just me would, being
1: naive i would hate to bust your bubble oh lord but the truth is people speak on things they have no experience on and they give advice because they heard someone did this or someone did that the truth is um a trust in itself is a vehicle that has its own implications. You need to speak to someone who is well-versed in what types of trust they are, how to set them up, where to set them up and how it makes sense. We are also ultimately wired towards the African perspective of city diaries. People sit down and they assign their inheritance to people. Legislature does not allow that. We have legal structures in countries no matter where it is your trust is set up that have their own expectations there is tax implications to estates that even if you think you've evaded it there will be implications death and taxes are global you have to meet with an advisor like myself or other people there's plenty of people out there that i am happy to refer people to who understand trust laws and multiple jurisdictions also who understands what it is what happens after someone passes on we tend to fear the conversation around death but it's an inevitable um, future and the truth is we will face it at some point and it will be real at that point so it's very important for us to be very knowledgeable, read up, do your research, then go to a legal advisor, go to an investment advisor, go to somebody who can link you to the right people, an estate planner, someone who has the knowledge and can give you options. Because going to your lawyer and saying setting up a trust, they'll be happy to do that, they'll bill you for it. But <laughs> Is that trust necessarily the type of trust you need? Is it the type of trust you need in that country? What are the implications if you want if it needs to be dissolved or it, it if it holds property or assets? Mm-hmm. Who sits on as as on the board of trustees? All these conversations are things you have to navigate. You just do not do it without careful consideration and the right advisors to help you to be the devil's advocate. And also it helps you to go into the space that I'm in, which is family governance and understand what communication within your family is like and what you would like it to be in the future. Because at any given point in time, as long as we have lived, we have estates. We have something of value that we have created that belongs to us. And when we pass on, those things of value need to be distributed to your loved ones or they will be distributed by whoever has the say-so accordingly with the law or whether it's cultural or legislative. That will happen, whether you like it or not. You have to be very clear about that. You, you don't take anything with you and you do not speak from the grave. <laughs> so be intentional. Um, understand what it is that needs to be done and um, start putting plan for your future and a future without you in it. Because it's very important to know there is a future out there without you in it. You want to protect your loved ones. Make sure you do the right things, take the right steps now to help them in future, not then have to face these struggles.
0: And my last question will be, now we talked about the African families and people having wealth and everything, be it yesterday or for generations before that. There is something that should be learned from outsiders, aka Indian families in the East African zone. And I think it's Lebanese families in the West African zone or something like that, who are generational traders and they are wealthy and they are doing crazy things for Africans. And us in the back of my mind, I'm like, (laughs) Hmm. what are we doing again how can they be here most I'm, I'm speaking for Burundians. I'm not even sure they have the Burundian nationality I know they have mm-hmm. Tanzanians and stuff and, and I'm like oh, Lord what can I do to learn from them but then again we never mingle when they say we it's the you know we tend to the, be the community yeah the communities don't really mingle unless you go to certain schools but then again you don't get to meet the whole and I'm like they do thrive in a country like Burundi. And I'm saying Burundi because it's really poor compared to, you know, um, and Rwanda and everything. Good Lord,
1: Sisi, what should we learn from them? When you're creating learning experiences, there has to be intentionality. So intentionality is asking yourself what it is that you want to learn. Then citing examples of, I want to learn from this person because of, this situation all that is is important and that it allows you then to figure out the next steps so if it means reaching out to people that can teach you from these spaces or creating communities or creating platforms such as this one where you are sharing their knowledge their wisdom their experiences because no experience is less than any other all experiences are relevant and um, you can draw from them it goes back to my content creation thought process where it becomes important for you to become a conduit for learning it becomes important for you to create the platform to create the opportunities and so many people are willing to teach we just don't reach out to them because we are afraid that we are they will not take us seriously or they will look down upon us but the truth is so many people are willing to 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 teach so many willing people are willing to share you just have to find them reach out to them and ask them for the opportunity to learn from them look at what happened with japan after world war ii it benchmarked benchmarking came from the japanese where They saw American companies that were doing great in certain areas, and they sent their people to learn from these companies, and they came back and benchmarked their own companies against these well-performing companies to replicate and make their model better. Japan, as small as it is, became one of the global giant economies simply because they benchmarked. As a country as Burundi, it's got many people in it. You can be the first to start benchmarking and teaching other people to benchmark. You can be the first to start engaging and teaching other people to engage. At the end of the day, ultimately, the end goal is to ensure that you get it right and you make the mistakes and you learn from the mistakes and you get better at it. And you create these spaces that you're looking for and you create these resources that you're looking for because the fact that they're not there gives you the opportunity to take it up.
0: I'll, I'll call them then. I'll, I'll say, CC
1: yes. gave hey. me a... Uh, this... Reach out. <laughs> and
0: say hello. There you go. And people who want to reach out to you and say, hey, I've been listening to Parod and
1: uh, I want to talk about this. Family businesses yes. and wealth generation in the African space." I am on LinkedIn, Titsimutendi. I am on Twitter, but I barely use it that much. <laughs> also, Titsimutendi. I have a website, nakalegacy.com. And my non-profit, uh, which I co-founded for African Family Firms, is Africanfamilyfirms.org, So not .com, but .org. So mm-hmm. Nakalegacy is N-H-A-K-A and the word legacy as one word dot com and then africanfamilyfirms.org and then i also have branded website to there you go so you can find me i am very reachable very findable <laughs> and you can read some of the articles i've written on african wealth at billionaires.africa and i've been featured on many platforms including amazing ones like this one so
0: thank you thank you and also you have your own podcast i was going to tell you i
1: do enterprising families enterprising families podcast uh, which is available across all podcast platforms and you can engage with some of my guests on there and their thoughts around wealth around Mm -hmm. all the things that impact wealth and yes I have created resources. I am creating the world I want to see in the future and the world that I want my grandchildren to walk into and say, I am because she was. Ooh,
0: that's that's really nice. Ooh, okay. So to every listener, reach out. And I'm, I'm not going to say comment, comment because it's like, oh, just reach leave a comment. But here it's like, go home think and when you need help she's here for you and uh thank you for your time honestly what can we wish for you for the next two to five years you can
1: still see me making a dent in time in this space that will vibrate way into the future because i have been given the opportunity to learn from so many great minds I will be in the African wealth space speaking about generational legacies and generational wealth. I have been speaking about legacies since my early 20s. In some way, I feel the importance of legacy building is, is a journey within itself. And I will be building businesses and building content that speaks to this journey, that speaks to other people's journey uplifting them because each one reaches one and when we do that we do a lot more i think that's just basically it i'm just going to continue being sitting with them and challenging the status quo come on
0: thanks for your time we'll be watching obviously we'll be listening and uh god bless you for this new endeavor and new things to come if you're opening family offices in north africa in burundi you're more than welcome and uh yeah changing lives changing generations cheers
1: thank you